This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Uh, people are still coming in, which is a good sign. Uh, so may I ask you to take your seats as quickly as possible. The speakers are here, which is always reassuring. <laughs> But I want to start before they might disappear. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, um, particularly for those of you uh, that are joining us just now that I haven't welcomed already, uh, good morning and uh, welcome to the 2019 edition of the annual Friends of Europe Security uh, Summit. Uh, as you know, uh, this year uh, we are devoting it to the theme of uh, strategic autonomy. Uh, my name is Jamie Shea. I know most of you, most of you know me, but still in my current incarnation, I'm very happily here as uh, the senior fellow at Friends of Europe uh, and uh, with the team to whom I express sincere thanks. Uh, we have tried to organize uh, for you what is going to to be a quick, short morning, but hopefully a very full, very stimulating morning, uh, demystifying um, and amplifying this concept of uh, strategic uh, autonomy. We're also meeting here, uh, for many of you I think probably for the first time in this fantastic new facility, Town Hall Europe, which was inaugurated just a couple of weeks ago by Friends of Europe. What you haven't seen today, but which uh, you will see when you come back is uh, uh, up to uh, 24, 25 different uh, video screens which allow uh, um, video uh, connectivity uh, across the world so that uh, we can hold many uh, debates uh, here, uh, both with uh, Europeans, uh, but also uh, interlocutors uh, beyond uh, Europe as well. It's a very modular facility, but um, having, of course, spent quite a bit of money uh, developing it, the key thing now is to use it. So rather than the traditional Brussels hotel where we've met before, uh, today we're holding our first security summit here in Town Hall uh, uh, Europe. Um, as you know, ladies and gentlemen, uh, today we're going to sort of look at the theme of strategic autonomy from two angles. In this first session, uh, specifically the European uh, angle and dimension. Uh, and then after a short intermezzo, when we'll explore uh, with uh, Sebastian Bay and Jessica Aro, the theme, very current theme of uh, disinformation, after this intermezzo, uh, we'll have then the second session uh, which will be uh, moderated by my fellow senior fellow 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 uh, Paul Taylor uh, who needs no introduction uh, the most famous journalist uh, in the world Uh, and Paul will, uh, as I say, look at, uh, with his uh, uh, guest speakers, look at the uh, wider context. Now, uh, for this first session on European strategic autonomy, um, I think as everybody knows, Uh, we have had a, a European uh, election for, uh, for the European Parliament, which, of course, uh, brought many populists to town, but brought a majority of people who believe in the European Union, at least parties and new MEPs who support the European project to town as, as well. Uh, this is going to make uh, for some lively debates. But what I take from this, at least uh, in terms of the polling that Friends of Europe has done, uh, particularly when a couple of weeks ago we put forward a new report called Vision for Europe, uh, sent to the new, well, we don't know who they are yet, but at least in the uh, mailbox uh, of the new commissioners and the new European leadership, the MEPs as they come to 
town. What we sense from the polling uh, and some of the debates we've already held here in Town Hall Europe was that our citizens do want a Europe which protects more and more, but they also want a Europe that stands up uh, in the world, which is the shaper and not the victim of history, which defends its values and interests uh, successfully uh, in the wider world, and which increasingly brings its uh, geopolitical uh, uh, role and influence more in line with its traditional, very powerful global economic uh, influence and, and, and role. And strategic autonomy is often seen as the magic formula which hopefully will unlock uh, the ability of Europe uh, to protect itself, to protect its citizens, but to be that more powerful actor defending its interests on the world stage. Um, and we uh, recently in Friends of Europe also hosted Pedro Serrano uh, from European Action Service. I asked him the question, Pedro, you know, is the EU committed uh, to this notion of strategic autonomy? Is this something which is not simply a good catchphrase in the EU global strategy, but which you want actively to seek to develop? He said a resounding C. Yes, uh, yeah, uh, the EU wants to take it forward. Uh, but there's still, I think, around Brussels and beyond Brussels, a certain degree of confusion. What does the term mean exactly? Uh, do we have a common understanding at the moment as to what that level of ambition would represent? Is it simply a military concept or is it meant to be something broader, uh, encompassing Europe, uh, Europe's more general geopolitical and economic uh, role? Is this something which is going to be top down from Brussels or is it going to be more bottom up uh, from the member states? Uh, is it something that also can improve uh, the performance of related organisations? organizations like uh, NATO. Um, these are some of the questions that have come up and I'm hoping very much that our four very distinguished speakers uh, this morning are going to be able to shed some light on this and certainly you'll have plenty of time to ask them questions uh, when they've uh, spoken. Uh, the lineup probably introduces itself so I can be very brief here because you have uh, some very familiar faces uh, here on the European and the transatlantic scene. We have Yuri Lauk uh, who uh, I first knew when he was the ambassador to NATO many years ago, but he's gone on uh, beyond his diplomatic career to have a very distinguished political career as a minister uh, in the Estonian government, but for the last few years, minister of uh, defense. I think you've done foreign affairs as well. You're in a previous incarnation. Uh, and thank you so much uh, for being uh, with us today. Uh, I'm going uh, not in any protocol order, but in the order uh, where they are standing. Then we have General uh, Fernando Alessandre Martinez, the CHOD, as we call them in the NATO jargon, the Chief of Defence of Spain. Thank you, General, so much for being here uh, today. Uh, we have uh, uh, Natalia Puzirev, uh, who is the Secretary of the Defence Committee of the Assemblée Nationale in France from Paris. So thank you, Madame, very much for being here. And of course, we have somebody who is always a, uh, a totally indispensable feature uh, of our security summits, uh, the very well-known face uh, and person of Yabda Hubsgefer, of course, former Secretary General of NATO, former Minister of Foreign Affairs of the uh, Netherlands, uh, a long-standing European and transatlantic uh, statesman, but fortunately for us, he's also a trustee of Friends of Europe and uh, president uh, for many years now, uh, overseeing our security defence programmes. Yep, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm going to ask the speakers to speak for about eight minutes on this theme, uh, shedding light, 
and then as I said afterwards, uh, we've got a good crowd here this morning and you're not going to be a bashful or shy crowd. There's plenty of microphones and we'll take as many questions as time uh, permits. So, uh, Yuri, can I ask you to start us off, please? Thank you. Thank you very much, Amy, and uh, very happy to be here. Uh, very impressive crowd. And, uh, of course, uh, Europe is very close to my heart personally, and uh, I'm so happy that I can speak here in front of all the friends of Europe. Uh, let me start my introductory um, comments by saying that it is clearly springtime in EU defense matters. Uh, there are so many new initiatives from PESCO to European Defense Fund, and I'm extremely happy that many of them were uh, incepted during the presidency of Estonia, particularly the European Defense Fund, uh, which was negotiated uh, under the uh, chairmanship of Estonia. So I'm very proud that we have given uh, a kind of a, a small push uh, to these uh, important uh, initiatives. Uh, but of course, today we are moving a step further. Uh, we are discussing about the strategic autonomy. Uh, we are talking about the European ambition to be a global player. And I think we have to be extremely realistic when uh, speaking about these uh, ambitions, because when we overshoot, we become dissatisfied with our own success, uh, which uh, I think is not warranted because actually we have shown a lot of progress when it comes to defense matters. But I think we have to keep in mind when speaking about European Union as an organization that EU treaties do not allow defense cooperation on a level we would perhaps ideally want. So, so there, there is a stop sign at some point, and we have to accept that. That is why, and it's not a secret to people who, who work with these issues, a lot of the EU defense uh, approach is based on industrial development, financing of uh, science projects, etc., etc. Uh, and uh, I think in that realm, we are moving on quite well. Uh, now, when it comes to purely military matters, uh, and I would refer here to uh, various uh, initiatives like the, uh, like the uh, European battle groups, as you know, they have not been successful at all. We have not been able to send out any battle groups. And uh, I would say this is not so much because of the financial aspects, although there have been long-term negotiations re regarding the Athena mechanism. Unfortunately, we haven't been too successful here. Uh, but it is really the issue of political will. It's uh, uh, what uh, the, our French colleagues would call military culture or strategic culture, uh, something which uh, I think uh, the, Europe, the European Union and in Europe at large, uh, let's say, apart from several European countries, 
uh, has uh, uh, shot it off. So I think uh, we should uh, be quite realistic when developing these initiatives. Uh, sometimes I hear big vision talk. I mean, there are people who believe that defense could be motor of further European integration. I'm quite hesitant in claiming that. Defense is an intimately national, sovereign matter. And to believe that this can be the basis of further integration, I think here we, we have to be very cautious. There are even analysts who say that this could be the new euro. But I remind you that uh, euro was created in a, in a situation whereby both parties or, or all parties uh, who, who created this common currency had enormous stakes at hand. So the question is whether we today have the same situation. And a couple of uh, things I would mention which I believe we could uh, perhaps develop uh, further, more quickly, uh, and uh, in, a, in a realistic manner. Uh, one, as I already said, culture of readiness, a culture, military culture, culture of understanding that there are circumstances where military force, using military force is warranted. I don't think there is a consensus in Europe in understanding that there are situations where military force is warranted. I think there are countries who are extremely careful. I have been in those negotiations myself. Many of you have, you all imagine how, how complicated it is, both in NATO and in the European Union. Uh, I think some of the issues we can address is uh, common funding <coughs> of the defense efforts. And here I return to Athena mechanism. Uh, the, the, the failure of our presidency, or something we were not able to achieve, was uh, reviving the Athena mechanism. Then uh, further developing of MPCC, again, in a realistic manner, you know that countries are not ready to provide uh, uh, enough uh, officers to these, uh, to these command systems. Using national exercising and using uh, national uh, military efforts to, to join the European, uh, to, to create the European culture of readiness, and finally developing the European Defence Fund. So, I will conclude here. Thank you very much. Yuri, thank, thank you very much. So, we look at the issues that are difficult to solve, like culture of readiness, understanding, but then issues which are more easily uh, solvable, like common funding in the Athena mechanism. So, we can uh, already have some things uh, that we can put into the pot uh, of putting strategic autonomy together. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I was just speaking to a colleague because I do understand the temperature is a little bit high in the room. We will, so many people have come, which is good, but we will do our best to uh, see what we can do to put some air conditioning on very, very shortly. Um, so, uh, for the second speaker, uh, General uh, Martinez, uh, please, sir, uh, the floor is yours. 
Well, first of all, uh, my gratitude for letting me be here. Jamie, thank you very much. Uh, not only because it's me, and uh, it's, uh, I think it's enough, but uh, also because I'm not here like uh, General Martin, by the way. Uh, this is a strange uh, thing that we have with the names in Spain. Uh, General Alejandre, which is my name. But uh, the thing is uh, that I'm not here because of me. I'm here only representing my armed forces, the armed forces of Spain. So it is a pleasure for me with, to be with uh, such a distinguished uh, pan, group of panelists. And it is uh, also a risk for you because I'm the only guy in uniform here, so everything is possible. <laughs> it is a privilege to talk to you. It is a privilege to be able to share my thoughts with you this morning with such a distinguished audience. And the most important thing for me is to be able to confront your questions. I will not invent the wheel. I'm a military guy. So I'm not inventing the wheel. The, the world is changing. Has always been changing. The only thing that is new is that now it changes at a speed, at a rate never seen before. It was not only, not even 10 years ago, when I was... Uh, uh, about to join NATO for the first time in my life, when Crimea was still part of the Ukraine, when uh, we had experienced terror in our streets, but not at the speed or at the uh, levels that we experienced uh, those later. Nobody knew about cyber defense, cyber attack, cyber nothing. And even the little green men were part of uh, fairy tales. But in 2019, almost 2020, the global threats have become more and more unpredictable. And we face hybrid warfare as a complex coordination of conventional and non-conventional threats like cyber attacks, terrorism, organized crime, or disinformation. And where state and non-state actors are involved, and why we need urgently to update the perspective and the tools in military approaches and beyond. This is the reason why, in my opinion, the European Union should enhance its strategic autonomy through a strong and effective foreign security and defense policy, and mine is the last, in order to create a certain and sufficient sense of deterrence and defense, but above all, in order to create some common understanding of the European interests. All these developments will impact somehow defense spending to be assumed by the European countries, although they don't like to talk about it. At the same time, no matter how big is the noise around, the European Union must maintain and reinforce the relation, the transatlantic link with North America. We're talking about Europe, but we're also talking about modern democracies as well. It must be taken into account the relationship with NATO and with uh, our friends on the other side of the Atlantic. We have the same goals, we have the same objectives. We talk about freedom, we talk about rule of law, peace and prosperity. Uh, we can talk about capabilities, and Minister uh, uh, Louis was talking about them, uh, pulling and sharing, uh, uh, making use of uh, NATO's capabilities, 
but there's something that, there's one capability that nobody talks about. It's the commitment, it's the will. It's the will to do something. A joint response will try to uh, balance NATO, EU, and national interest, and we all do have some national interest. A joint response trying to avoid duplication in common efforts to those threats that I mentioned before is needed. EU needs more commitment, more implication, particularly in Africa, where we Europeans face a, a clear and present danger. The joint response by NATO and Europe to a growing number of global challenges is needed, for example, uh, facing the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, the terrorism that I mentioned before, and all the efforts made by a huge number of actors in Africa, as well as I just mentioned. It is a must to close the gap to our relationship with the uh, United States and with NATO. As powers of global significance, and as men rightly mentioned by the Minister, we have a responsibility to cooperate, to provide leadership across the world. The vacuum that we do not fill, the flank that we leave open, will be closed by third parties. In developing this, its global role, Europe must be fully aware of the importance of the people working with uh, us around. But at the same time, must uh, leave behind overconfidence uh, that NATO is on duty alone. The North American part of NATO uh, is essential, but we need to pay, to pay our share. We, the European countries, need to be reliable and committed. We owe our citizens, our people, a course of action in which NATO and the European Union are not colliding, but gradually, gradually aligning to seek a more compatible way. The official declaration last year in uh, July, July in the Brussels NATO summit, emphasized that the European Union is a unique and essential strategic partner for NATO and vice versa. Uh, and it also says about something about tangible cooperation objectives being achieved. I think it's a little bit optim optimistic, but in any case, I will uh, stick to that declaration. Uh, Europe has responsibility in uh, the defense of its own territory. In conclusion, let me repeat, nothing's new. The European countries are stronger and safer, but need to keep an eye on uh, our links to the, uh, through the transatlantic link and with NATO. We need some uh, level of autonomy in defense and deterrence of our own national interests. But my final point is that we, Europeans, should define our common interest. Africa is probably one of them. That we need to overcome the so-called level of ambition and start talking about those European common interests that will shape our future. And of course, that we should recognize that if we like to be relevant, if we like to be influential as Europeans, we need a stronger Europe. And that, in my field, means uh, better equip, stronger armed forces. Thank you very much. Uh, General Alessandri, thank you very much indeed.
uh, I took from your uh, remarks that strategic autonomy has to cover a broad range of threats, uh, the new ones as well as the more classical ones. You put a great deal of emphasis on the will, commitment, but fair burden sharing. Uh, the need to preserve the transatlantic link as we go forward. and But you interestingly also pointed to Africa as maybe one of the key priorities where strategic autonomy should focus. So you called it a clear and present danger. I'm sure that that's going to evoke some questions uh, about exactly what that means uh, when we uh, have our discussion in a moment. But General, thank you very much indeed. Uh, we now move on to uh, Natalia Puzirev. Uh, as I said, she is the Secretary of the Defence Committee in the Assemblée Nationale. Madame, vous êtes cordialement la bienvenue, and over to you. Merci. Merci. Uh, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be uh, um, among uh, so many friends of uh, Europe here today. So, um, if I may come back to the, the wording um, strategic autonomy, of course it can be a matter of debate, but if I would try um, to find a definition, it would be uh, something like uh, to be able to protect our strategic interests and our European citizens inside our borders and abroad. Um, and I would also mention that the ultimate goal um, is the uh, freedom of action whenever it is necessary. So it doesn't mean we have to, to be... Uh, we have to intervene on our own. Um, it, we can um, intervene, operate jointly with our allies, uh, with NATO forces, for instance, in case, in case there's a high-spectrum um, conflict. But we could envisage as well to have joint operation as um, under a kind of form of coalition between... Um, uh, between ourselves, between um, um, army force, uh, forces from uh, different uh, European countries. Uh, so when I mean it's an uh, ultimate goal is the freedom of action, um, of course it um, relies on um, the ability we'll have to find a kind of a consensus on where, when, um, how we want to conduct uh, joint operations. So let me be maybe a bit more specific about uh, what we could be the, these kind of uh, scenarios. Um, we have to find um, answers to, to crisis, to situation of crisis. Um, it could be um, a humanitarian crisis. We should not um, think only about um, conflicts or, or a high-intensity uh, uh, scenario, which I think probably we will not go without the uh, NATO or without our allies, uh, should it be the case. So we have to think about other type of crisis. We have to think about, um, for instance, uh, if, something, if something should happen in the Balkans, how should we react together? Uh, the general mentioned situation in Africa, which is really uh, close to Europe and where, you know, um, th terrorist groups can 
easily uh, move from different countries and even uh, cross the Mediterranean Sea to uh, lead attacks on our ground. Um, we could think also of uh, some scenario, even if it's, uh, uh, I hope it's a very low possibility that we have to, um, um, we have to go and rescue some of the European citizen um, in South Korea, for instance, in case of um, the situation between North and South Korea being uh, very uh, uh, degrading very, very quickly. Well, this is only, uh, you know, these are only hypotheses, but we have at least to consider all these kind of possible scenarios. That's why um, French President Emmanuel Macron and the government um, share the same strong political will and uh, have conducted, have launched this uh, European intervention initiative. And as it was previously said uh, by the minister, it was, it is, the intention is to share a common strategic culture. If we don't speak the same language, how are we going to be able to plan for such situation, such scenarios. So first of all is to share a common uh, strategic culture and then maybe to train together, so do call planning and get ready. Uh, this is certainly very important. So it participates to a, um, it participates from a, a, a political will to address these issues uh, which are as I said, it can be a humanitarian crisis, a security crisis at our border uh, because of a, um, 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 my, migrants coming in a large number, and it can be also maybe defense matters, uh, as we said, or, or providing more stability within the African continent, for instance. Um, so France has been doing a lot. Um, in the past years, we have been... Uh, uh, we have 30,000 soldiers deployed all around the world. Um, thanks to our partners and allies, uh, we have been able to sustain a, le a, level of a, uh, a certain level of efforts in the Sahel. Um, so, and, and thank especially to Estonia, who has uh, uh, sent some troops, um, Spain, Great Britain as well, Germany, um, and so many countries are you know contributing to this um, stability process within Sahel, and we value very much that. Uh, but for sure, France's vocation is not to stand alone, and to sustaining this effort throughout years will be certainly uh, very um, uh, difficult. And we are paying us all the, the high price. We we have a, a certain um, number of soldiers who, who left their their lives. Um, in this area. So we have the strong political will and we um, think that it's very important to, to build on more capabilities, of course, so there's a PESCO for, for that. We, we need to secure the, um, the European Defence Fund. This is a very important. It's a, it has not been secure, fully secured now. Uh, so um, we will be advocating for, for th that the, the budget, the funds are uh, duly uh, allocated to this, uh, this new fund, which will be which will enable our industry uh, to prepare for 
the new technologies, cutting edge, te technology, cutting edge technologies, uh, but we believe also on solidarity. Um, solidarity, this is where maybe we can find the consensus. You know, We have to be uh, solidaire, as we say in French, um, because the level of, threat, of threats, and I will conclude by, by, by that, is, is very high. Um, of course, there's a rivalry between uh, great powers, but there's also, there are also so many hybrid threats. And uh, certainly we have to protect our strategic interests. So if we broaden the view about uh, uh, strategic autonomy, um, we have to think also on the at the strategic level. Um, we will we'll need to have uh, key technologies for the future. We need to have a strong industry. If not, we may remain or become more and more dependent. Is that what we want? I don't think European citizens really um, envisage the future that being dependent on connectivity, for instance, being dependent on Intelligent, uh, artificial intelligence, we need to certainly to build up our muscles. So um, my conclusions, and, and as I walk by, uh, coming here through the European Parliament, I've seen some ostriches, 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 <laughs> ostriches, yeah. ostriches with their head in the ground. <laughs> And uh, I thought, no, it's really time we take our responsibilities. We have to be ambitious, and certainly we cannot bury our heads in the sand. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. We'll make sure that none of those ostriches uh, come this way. Um, thank you very much indeed. For what I uh, uh, note from your intervention, Madame, is Freedom of action is key, that the European strategic autonomy means that the Europeans mustn't have dependencies on others that prevent them uh, defending their interests, uh, particularly when it comes to the defence technology industrial base. You mentioned the different types of crises that Europeans could be called upon to uh, to react to, but interestingly you mentioned that this could go as far as Asia, that it's not only the periphery, that it also means a capacity to go beyond the periphery. Interesting uh, comments on uh, the Korean Peninsula. Uh, you mentioned the European Intervention Initiative of President Macron. Of course, that begs the interesting question, which could come up in the discussion of where should the balance lie between working inside the EU through the institutions with the EU members, and where should it be outside the EU in a more sort of ad hoc way, which could involve uh, non-EU members, perhaps my country post-Brexit uh, and others uh, come to mind as, 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 as well. But then the need for solidarity and, and what that means in, in practical terms. Uh, so thank you very much. Uh, fourth and uh, last speaker before we go to the discussion, uh, you know him well, Yap de Hoopskerpa, and I have now, Yap, uh, give you the floor uh, for your uh, remarks. Please. Thank you, Jamie, and thank you for your welcome. It's remarkable that uh, we know each other now for two decades. You cannot proper, properly pronounce my name, but oh. well, <laughs> yeah, but after Martinez, after Martinez, I was hoping to improve, but well, uh, you have you have, I, you have I, too many other quali I qualities. Never, Jamie, I never quite get there. For that. Uh, let, let me let me by by speaking about the notion of, of strategic autonomy. Let me uh, start to flag a warning, uh, and that is a warning for sloganism. 
uh, if that's the correct English word. Uh, global Britain, a slogan in search of substance. Uh, what is global Britain? I, I, I don't know. What is strategic, what is strategic autonomy? Uh, basically, it is we can, we can go it alone if, if, if necessary. Uh, can we? I'll try to answer that question in, in the seven, eight minutes I'm, I'm, I'm having. Second remark, strategic autonomy to me is much more uh, than defense. It is security in the widest sense of the word. Uh, and that goes from uh, how do we screen uh, Chinese investments? What is Europe's industrial policy? Uh, are we taking high tech seriously enough? Why are we in such trouble with Huawei at the moment? because we simply are lagging behind. We do not have a Huawei. Yes, we have Nokia and Ericsson, but we have not been innovative enough. That is also strategic autonomy, talking about new challenges and, and, and new threats. Competition policy should be part of strategic autonomy. Uh, why, why has the European Competition Commissioner say no to, uh, to Siemens Alstom? Because she can only evaluate that decision against the internal market criteria. Shouldn't that be much, uh, much, much wider? Uh, we are building Nord Stream 2, uh, and we are increasing our energy dependence on Russia. Is that right? Is that wrong? Is Nord Stream 2 a political project? Is it an e only an economic project? That is, in my opinion, all parts when you have the guts to use the qualification uh, strategic aut autonomy. And it is, of course, uh, security and defense uh, uh, in, 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 in the more, in the more narrow sense. Uh, and I do very much agree uh, with my three colleagues here behind the table uh, that, of course, there is a need, a strong need for Europe uh, to work on strategic autonomy. So I, I, I do not reject the notion as such. Uh, I, I want to be a bit careful. Because what is the overarching geopolitical reality. The geopolitical reality is that we Europeans should prevent to become the nut in the cracker, the nutcracker, operated by the Chinese and the Americans. That is the major rivalry. We then have another slogan, uh, China is a systemic rival. I don't exactly know what systemic rival means, but anyway, that, that, that is the big geostrategic rivalry. And if we want to prevent to become the nut in the cracker, that also includes that Europe can project hard military power. And I do know that there is a lack of political will. I do know there is no common, common strategy. But still, and I'm not going to repeat the scenarios uh, uh, the general, Madame Puzirev, has, has, has mentioned. If, if, if things go wrong in the Sahelian zone, in the Sahel, where Boko Haram meets uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, uh, meets the remnants of, 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 of ISIL, I could very well imagine that what France is now doing on its own in Mali, which is also now a UN operation, that there might be the need to project hard military power. In such a scenario, we really can't go to the Oval Office in Washington, ring the doorbell there, and say, please, Mr. Trump, can you help us? Mr. Trump might not help anyway, but I mean, that's, that's a different discussion, different debate. We, we cannot ring the Oval Office doorbell then. And the same goes, and it has been mentioned, when the demons in the Balkans would rise again. We are neglecting the Western Balkans. We are neglecting them. Travel through the region and you'll see how Turkey and Saudi Arabia and China and Russia are competing for influence in that, in that region, which is our backyard. 
And I think almost all of us will remember the 90s and what, what happened there. It's still not yet a stable part of our backyard. In other words, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, a, a making, making doomsday predictions. There is a need to project hard power. How to do this? PESCO, I'm all in favor of PESCO, but PESCO uh, is already uh, an, an operation where many, many nations contribute. Some would say too many. Cumbersome, bureaucratic, but still it should go on within, Jamie, within the European Union institutions. I would first of all go, uh, if I answer the question how to do it, for the Macron Initiative. Uh, it's outside the European Union, I know, and, and, and some real believers will say it's outside the institutional framework, so don't do it. I think we should. First of all, because France, after Brexit, will be the only nation with a tradition of projecting hard military power. And I'm asking you and asking myself, what will be left of the European Union after Brexit? So the Macron Initiative, and the British have already signed up, gives us also an opportunity to keep the British with us in the, in the realm of security and defense. And we can't do without them. How much we might dislike Brexit, it's, it's dramatic for them, it's dramatic for us. Uh, that's again a topic for another day, but we should have the Brits with us. <laughs> Otherwise, it's France. G G Germany, Germany is Germany. Uh, as we know, Germany will not take the lead in projecting hard military power. And Germany is a bit absent, in my opinion, at the moment. I regret this, because let's also face the fact that without French-German leadership, this will not work. I mean, you, 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 can't, you can't depend, uh, I say it with all due respect, on my own country, like the Netherlands or, or Estonia, when you have to seriously act militarily. I'm not taking Article 5 and NATO in doubt. I, I think when such a scenario would, would, would arise, uh, the Americans would come, because it would be their own interest to come. Uh, but all those sub-Article 5 non-NATO scenario, scenarios make it imperative uh, uh, that we have the, uh, the opportunity to, uh, to act. Uh, to conclude, uh, we need more uh, than uh, procedural answers to these questions. And political will has already been mentioned by, by, by all my colleagues. Uh, when we don't have the political will, and we have not had the political will, as Minister Lewick was referring to, because the battle group seemed to be on a, on a permanent holiday because nobody has been able to find them, uh, when, 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 we, when we do not only refer to procedural answers uh, and, and discuss political will and, and common strategy, uh, we'll not get there. Uh, and then we end on the wrong side uh, of, 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 of the nutcracker, uh, because then, uh, and I would hate it because I'm a European, uh, will end uh, uh, with a quote of George Robertson, my predecessor as NATO Secretary General, Jamie will remember, who qualified uh, the European Union as a financial economic giant, uh, a political adolescent and a military pygmy. He was criticized for the pygmy, uh, uh, let's say dwarf, but we are still a dwarf, uh, and, 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 and that, that is really, under present geopolitical circumstances, not acceptable anymore. Thank you, Jamie. Yep, thank, thank you very much. Uh, yep, you made some hard-hitting points there. The idea that do we need European champions to compete in this uh, 
great power world and does that mean uh, new rules uh, for example for industrial mergers taking a hard look at dependencies when you negotiate trade deals uh, Europe not to be a nut in the cracker that's a very arresting uh, image uh, and of course what is the difference between a strategic competitor and a systemic uh, competitor uh, you argued that strategic autonomy must have a hard power uh, element you argued for pragmatism particularly when building the European defense around Europe's key uh, strategic players mentioning the the UK uh, uh, although of course uh, not excluding the EU but when you looked at the EU said we need more than procedural answers and as well and making the point about political will so ladies and gentlemen I think we've got a lot of good uh, notions on the table there a lot of good ideas uh, we've got some good pointers to fill in that box of what is European strategic autonomy Jonathan and I are always desperate to ask a question so I will not delay this by yet another nanosecond Jonathan and I'll give you the microphone but before Jonathan you speak general rule ladies and gentlemen which you're all familiar with please give your name and affiliation please keep your questions short so we can get in as many as possible and please make it clear to whom your question is directed you don't need to know that Jonathan but that's for the sake of everybody else go and uh, Jonathan Isle from the Royal United Services Institute in London. Um, I, I'm, 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 I, I salute what the French have done and I salute their ability to uh, lead the debate in Europe. I must say, uh, Madame Puzirev, you're being very polite. I've not seen many uh, ostriches in, in Brussels. I've seen some in Berlin. Um, but on the, on the subject of uh, a question to all of you. How much of this discussion should be institutionalized in new treaty or legally binding arrangements? And how much, because that's the dramatic debate about the French initiatives, how much of it can be outside? If you take into account uh, Brexit, should Brexit happen, um, do you believe that there should be a formal arrangement tying Britain in, formal in institutional terms? Or are we okay with the kind of arrangement that the French have suggested, an ad hoc one, which could be very intimate, very productive, but will be undefined in terms of institutional structures? It seems to me that the institutional question, which is the most boring one, may now be the most critical one, at least as far as harvesting the British contribution. Uh, okay, Jonathan, thanks a lot. Jonathan's question was directed at everybody, so can I ask each, each panel member, if you want to comment, there's no obligation, of course, but to just give a couple of sentences so that we can then quickly go to the next question. Uh, Minister, please. Uh, as I said in my presentation, I firmly believe that at some point we are stopped by the existing treaties. At the same time, it seems to be politically extremely unlikely that we can change any of those treaties. So we are, we are working on the sidelines of the treaties, uh, taking a very, very narrow path uh, between what's actually legal and what's politically feasible, et cetera, et cetera. But I am a great believer into a coalition of the willing, which EI2 uh, basically is. We are now indeed with our French colleagues in Operation Barkhan uh, in Mali, it's working very well uh, with the leadership of one large country and others joining in. I think we should be as pragmatic as possible. 
But when it comes to Brexit and Great Britain, here I think we would need, with the European Union, on issues which the European Union is dealing, uh, we would need a more formal arrangement because EU is very formal. It is very structured. And unless there is a, some type of a agreement, hopefully not tainted by the enormous animosity on other issues we are facing, I think that would be superb. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. General, any thoughts on this? Jonathan, if I may, uh, talking from a military point of view, of course, I will rather prefer to institutionalize the answer. But politically, I think that we should go for more pragmatic approaches to your question. So most probably, coalitions and uh, the initiative uh, of President Macron will be the answer, at least in the short term, and particularly when we don't have a clear commission yet. Thanks. Madame Puzerev. Yes, I, France was mentioned directly. Yes, I completely agree with uh, what uh, what has been said uh, pr uh, previously. So, coalition of the willing and uh, capable nations—that's uh, certainly the more pragmatic way to to move forward. Um, reshuffling all the institution now would be maybe not the appropriate uh, moment. Uh, we have to start a new episode of the uh, European uh, Union construction, but uh, we should not uh, jeopardize the whole thing. But um, uh, besides the European Intervention Initiative, which can bring an answer, uh, there was a proposal. I, I don't know if the acceptance is the same in Germany than in, uh, in France, so this has to be discussed further, um, about um, putting in place um, a European Security Council uh, able to address all these matters, security at large, competition as it was mentioned as well. Are we able to secure our uh, strategic purchasing of energy, of uh, of um, rare materials and things like that? You know. How can we address strategic issues within the European Union? Do we need to build a new uh, agency or, or any kind of um, new uh, organism? Uh, that's not sure, but at least we must have the idea, and this was the idea beneath this uh, European Security Council, to address matters that are completely well horizontal, transversal, you know, which are not dealt with within the European Commission, because each uh, commission has its own um, uh, competencies. So, who really has the ability to form the decision of our political uh, leaders on what is strategic for Europe? And the idea was also that we can find a way to associate, depending on the topics, depending on the situation, uh, United Kingdom in some circumstances, and provided that the United Kingdom is, is, I would say, contributing uh, in uh, various forms to the common effort. Thank you, Madame. Uh, yep, any further, you raised that topic, so any can, further can thoughts? It can be very brief. I, I, I do agree very much with the Minister Luik. Uh, let's, let's try to get it done. 
which is for me more important uh, than, than starting to answer all kind of institutional questions. Because, because then, then the EU will be choking again, which we, which we see so, so often. So that's why I mentioned EI2 uh, in, my, in my first intervention. Uh, it will always be coalitions of the willing. Afghanistan was a coalition of the willing. Kosovo was a coalition of the willing. Uh, I mean, under, under, under NATO roof uh, or under EU roof in the Mediterranean. But it's always coalition of the willing. So let's not be afraid. The only key thing, Jonathan Isle, indeed, is what to do uh, with our British friends after Brexit. And there I think you need more than just say these are coalitions of the willing, you need some form of an institutional arrangement uh, answering the question how to keep them uh, uh, with, with, within the European effort. Because I say again, we, we can't do without them. And, and, and finally, listening to EI2 and listening to my, to my colleagues and to the questions, I repeat what I said before, uh, I, would, I would almost commit a murder in, in, in the political sense to keep Germany on board. Because we should not do this uh, without active and full participation of Germany. Uh, you, you need, apart from France, a, a second European Union partner with sufficient gravitas to get this off the ground at all. Uh, and when the Germans are, are remaining lukewarm about these ideas, uh, they will be much more difficult to, to accomplish than, uh, than without the Germans. But let the French... Let the French have the lead. I, I know that the most famous journalist in the world, Paul Taylor, uh, thinks that the French uh, will, will, not, will not share power. But never, nevertheless, Paul, I, I, would, I, would, I would say, let, let, let's give Macron a chance. Okay. Thank you for that. Yep. Uh, Pauline, you wanted to ask a question? Yep. The, the microphone should magically appear. Brooks, we've got you next. If you don't mind keeping the question short, and not to every member of the panel, uh, because that way we can get more in. Obviously, Pauline, if I gentle hint. Absolutely, Over gentle you, hint. Hello, my name is Pauline Massard. I used to work for Friends of Europe, but I'm now with CES, uh, Strategic uh, Consultancy, Active in Security and Defence. I have two very quick questions. One uh, to you, Madame Pouzirev. Um it seems to me you explain strategic autonomy rather clearly. Why is it almost impossible to get European consensus? on what strategic autonomy is. Is it just a question of US, I'm going to say influence? Um, more importantly, what can we do about it? A uh, question to General Alejandre. Um, with Brexit, Spain is now approaching the core of decision-making in European military matters. We've heard that Spain isn't completely satisfied with what PESCO projects have been providing so far, that they are not operational enough, focusing too much on capabilities. Now that you are at the core of the decision-making apparatus and working with France so well, how do you hope to change this? Okay, thanks, Paul, and thanks for uh, two very concrete questions. So, so first to Madame Pouzirev, please. So, um, um, well, of course, it's, it's difficult to have a common understanding when we are 28, 27, every, everyone knows that, but, um, for instance, if we take, uh, if we talk about um, military matters, this um, European intervention initiative will bring together uh, chief of, of, of staff of, of various countries, and these are these, the people who are expert in, 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 in their area, and so they can share uh, certainly their their views, and and then it, there's a review at the ministry, uh, defense ministry level. It's a yearly uh, meeting, and this is where you can have a uh, a shared vision of uh, the level of threats. I think it's it's a tool that the our defense minister can can of course uh, use to 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 share the same. Uh, um, 
ideas about uh, what are um, what is strategic to protect inside the borders and, and abroad. Um, and then um, I cannot be really more specific to to, to that, but it's it's uh, uh, the the idea is to have again this transversal view of what is strategic for Europe. The um, for instance, the uh, scrutiny of uh, foreign direct investment. You know, there's a um, say um, uh, not a directive, a uh, reglement, uh, regulation, yes. regulation that has been uh, worked out in um, here in Brussels is very important to this uh, respect. You know, and uh, it will be certainly a forum open to discussion. Uh, where should we put the uh, the, the 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 barriers, the the, uh, the borders, and uh, what should we accept or not? Uh, so you know, these uh, two new tools are coming in, and uh, yes, we have to align our our, th our thoughts uh, by thinking, talking, analyzing, but certainly not by putting our heads in the ground. Thank you very much, uh, uh, General. General, please. <coughs> I will split the, the, the answer in two uh, once again. So from the point of view of PESCO, CARD, and all that stuff, it's more on the political side of the house. And uh, as you do know, uh, we don't have a proper government established yet, so we are functioning with the previous one. I will uh, refrain to tell you exactly where we go, because I don't know, to tell you the truth. From the military point of view, one thing that I'm sure is that Spain will try to fill the gap. It's not easy because the boots are really huge, uh, the, the Brexit boots, to, to make it more uh, visual. So we will try to fill the gap. We will try to make, uh, to make sure to the rest of Europe that we will commit ourselves as allies and Europeans and and with a huge degree of solidarity. And this is what we did in uh, some of the recent operations, for example, in Atalanta, where we uh, had the process of handing over, taking over from uh, Great Britain to us. And we are trying to commit our forces. But of course, uh, as I mentioned a couple of times, the money is behind. So we, don't, we haven't seen the money yet. That's a very famous uh, movie uh, slogan. Show me the money. Uh, Jerry Maguire uh, applies to our world or two. The hands are going up, so let's try to get as many questions as possible. Brooks, you're next, please. Terry, and then I recognize the uh, gentleman there. Thank you. Uh, yes, Brooks Singer, Jane's Defense Weekly. Two quick questions. Uh, virtually all of the new defense, EU defense initiatives coming from the Commission are about industry and creating new capabilities, which will fall to national control and national decision-making. Um, to our two big countries, Spain and France, do you see any contradiction between developing these capabilities for national strategic autonomy without reforming the Council for faster decision-making based on QMV, qualified majority voting? For the two smaller countries, we've heard that strategic autonomy is freedom of action, but indeed it's also freedom of speed, which comes back to the decision-making at EU level. If Europe is serious about that, then the reform is critical. Would your two smaller countries support that reform? 
So Thank you. No good having extra capabilities if you don't have the ability to decide on using them. I suppose battle groups was already a bit of a pointer in that direction, uh, which uh, Minister Light mentioned earlier. So uh, uh, Brooks asked for the the two bigger countries uh, to go first. So General, would you like to, or Madame Puzirev? <laughs> Madame Puzirev. Well, first, they are not no big countries and no small exactly. countries in, in <laughs> Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, I don't know if I get uh, 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 if I got it right, but but uh, uh, it seems to me the, the answer is like, for instance, the the new strategic programs we have we have launched. Uh, I use the term strategic again because I think it's very important for the future of our industrial base as well, um, like the um, FCAS. So uh, it's the future combat air system, that program that has been launched between at first Germany and France, and that Spain has joined um, uh, as well. Um, this is an answer. We have, of course, national interest to prepare for the next generation fighter. Uh, we know uh, how it's uh, important to maintain uh, this. Uh, some key technologies in the regarding fighter aircrafts, engines, but there's uh, one more layer in that system. There's the connectivity. It has this. This system has to be capable to encompass drones and UAVs, whatever satellites and everything. Uh, so this is that's why it's a strategic uh, program. My and. But then I think, as we said, we have to be pragmatic. So, um, well, nothing. Uh, well, we 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 could launch this uh, strategic program, and we hope that we'll have more players on board. You see. So, do we really need to reform the the the, the whole um, of the institutions? Um, because yes, the the the. the the vote to majority is uh, or unanimity is is, uh, is can be a, a blockage. So anyway, we have no time to. We have to get prepared. So we have no time to um, to reform the institution. Certainly, it will happen, but it 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 may take 10, 15 years time. So we are not going to uh, wait until it happens. We really have to build our muscles before that. Work in parallel, I think. Is, uh, yeah, again, many hands are up, so may I ask the other speakers for I join quick, her? quick remarks yeah. on that. Again, and <laughs> Excellent, that's good. Uh, Yap, any thoughts on the... Very, very dangerous yeah. remark to refer in the presence of a Dutchman as the Netherlands yeah. is a small country, but anyway, I'll <laughs> leave that. We, we want to be, we always, well, the Dutch always want to be the biggest of the small ones or the smallest of the big ones. Yeah. Uh, for the 19th economy in the world. Not too bad. Anyway, dangerous remark. Uh, I, I, would also, I would also make a plea for pragmatism here. Q, QMV will never work. Let, let's, let's, let's forget it. Let's not try to overreach and think that you can, you can answer those questions by saying uh, QMV. Uh, let's do it in a pragmatic way. I'm talking about my, my, small, my small country, the Dutch are working, are working hands in glove with the Belgian Air Force. We have a German-Dutch Army Corps. Uh, uh, that, that, that is the way forward. 
But the point is, and I think Minister Lewick made, made, made that point very early this, this, this morning, that in these matters we are discussing today uh, go to the core of national sovereignty. Uh, th that's why a European army is a complete misnomer, uh, because as if the European Parliament is going to decide to send young, young men and women into, into, into battle. It goes to the core of, sover of, of sovereignty, and, and that is why the only way to me is, is the pragmatic way, not forcing QMV, but simply doing on a day-to-day -day basis what many European Union nations are doing, and, th and that, is, that, is, that is working very close together. It would, of course, be better if there would be more standardization, uh, F-35, Typhoon, other aircraft, Germany will probably at the end buy a mix of the two. Doesn't make things easier, but for political reasons I can understand. Here is Germany again, by the way. But let's, let's, be, let's be pragmatic, be my answer. Okay, Minister Jan I think when it comes to PESCO projects, then you need only a couple of unanimous votes. Afterwards, every project is for itself and the project leading countries will then decide how the project goes. Uh, there is another big issue now on the table, which is the involvement of uh, so-called third countries. Uh, here we haven't found a, a proper compromise yet. The small countries have some views here. <laughs> but, uh, but the fact is that many countries uh, support uh, free involvement or, or, or at least non-complicated involvement of, of third countries. Uh, others are more skeptical. Obviously, we have to keep in mind that there is the United States, which for many countries is the guarantor of deterrence against the big neighbors. Uh, but also Great Britain, unfortunately, will soon be a third, third party or third country. And uh, so, so this is an issue I hope we can solve very quickly. Mr. Thanks. In, in view of, of obviously the, the marching clock, uh, I'll take three questions uh, all together and ask the panelists then not necessarily to answer each one, but just pick up what you want to pick up. Uh, Terry, Terry Schultz in the front row is first. And then gentleman who's patiently been waiting uh, there. Terry, you go. Thanks. Terry Schultz. I'm a journalist with National Public Radio in Deutsche Welle. Um, my question is uh, less technical and, and more political heading into the defense minister's meeting, where surely we're going to hear another lambasting of primarily Germany for some reason um, on 2%. So my question, um, and this is something that's being promoted by General Ben Hodges, mm -hmm. among others, um, about changing the way the 2% is calculated. Um, for example, with new investments in cyber, with, um, would that be able to count as a 2% investments on the ground. Um, how does a 2%er feel about that? I knew Yuri would want to talk. Um, how does a very less than 2%er feel about that? Um, I'd, be, I'd be interested in that. Is that a possibility so that we could get past this continuing, very tired, fatiguing debate about 2%? Is there any chance you can calculate it in a different way so Germany reaches that level and that capabilities, it, you, would, you would just sort of change the way it's calculated so that different capabilities could be counted toward the... Thanks, and I think Wolfgang Ischenker proposed 3%, which obviously is the solution if we can't spend 2%. Uh, see. Uh, Terry, thank you. Uh, the patiently waiting gentleman at the back, please. Your second question, and we'll take one more after that. Thank you uh, to all speakers. Uh, my name is Günhan Emre Ersoy. I'm uh, first counselor of uh, Turkish de delegation to the EU. I have a short comment uh, about uh, the intervention of Mr. Schaeffer. 
when he was explaining why Europe uh, needs a strategic autonomy, he mentioned uh, that <coughs> uh, Europe is neglecting the Balkans, and in the Balkans, among other countries, uh, Turkey, uh, against Turkey's influence, influence in that uh, uh, region. I, I'm really surprised because as a former Secretary General of NATO, I guess he should uh, he, he should know that knew that uh, Turkey has always supported the full integration of Balkan countries to the NATO, but also to the EU. Although we are not uh, member, and we are uh, one of the uh, allied countries in the NATO, and although we are in a stalemate, we are still negotiating uh, candidate country to the EU. So if Turkey could be anything for uh, strategic autonomy of Europe, it could be an asset, but not a reason against. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I'm sure certainly the, sec certainly the Secretary General knows that perfectly well, but I'll let him, of course, answer for himself. Thank you, sir. And then there was an also patiently waiting lady at the back, please. So third and final question for this round. Thank you, Pascal Ngabori, pilot for Dev. Uh, in the view of strategic uh, autonomy and strategic cooperation, should the EU and NATO have a leading role in the reconstruction of uh, Syria, Iraq, and uh, the stabilization of the neighboring countries? Because it's good to have like faraway threats, like in Sahel, and to to build on uh, you know uh, strategic prevention. But uh, isn't it like also a geopolitical role of the EU together with the neighboring countries? I mean, in the larger region. Thank you. Okay. Thank Thank you. So, uh, as I said, please, dear panel, just pick up what you want to pick up. No need to answer everything. We'll go in reverse order, if I may. Uh, yeah, would you like to go first, particularly as there was a question to you yeah. from our Turkish colleague? To, to avoid any misunderstanding, what, what I said was and is, and I'll stick to that, uh, is, is that when I, when I travel the Balkans, uh, I, I see uh, influence. I said there's not, not, not said there's anything wrong with it, but I see Turkey, I see Saudi Arabia, China, and Russia. And my point was and is that the European Union should not neglect that part of its backyard. I know that Turkey is supporting uh, Euro-Atlantic integration. That's not new to you, neither is it new to me. Uh, I once was, I once was, mark my words, I once was a staunch supporter of Turkey's entry into the European Union. Uh, Turkey makes that, uh, under present circumstances, extremely difficult. Uh, and it makes NATO also extremely difficult by the S-400 debate. Uh, but I, I leave those items aside. We can perhaps continue our discussion bilaterally. Uh, there's nothing wrong, uh, given Turkey's geographical position and, and geography matters, as we all know, in, in, in politics in the Western Balkans, uh, in the Balkans. My only point was and is that I would appreciate that at a certain stage the European Union would give a signal and that might be a signal which will take 15, 20, 25 years to a number of nations in the Western Balkans who are aspiring uh, at the end of the day to become members of the European Union. A signal, not more than that. I'm not making a plea for entry now. I know that's absolutely impossible uh, because I, not for nothing, I was speaking uh, about the demons. It is not yet a stable part of Europe, it's part of Europe, not yet a stable part of Europe. That is why, of course, why Turkey is interested. Turkey is where it, where it is. Uh, Turkey is a, 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 a NATO ally, uh, um, but that's what I have to say about this. So I wasn't using these phrases in any pejorative way, but I hope you will abide with me that, that Turkey makes life not always as easy as it could be. 
Yep, thank you very much. Uh, Madam Puzarev, just for the questions that interested you. In total agreement uh, regarding Balkans. Um, so uh, about the changing the 2% uh, calculation, uh, why not? That's a very interesting um, um, comment. Uh, I have uh, not investigated so far the issue. You know, of course, in France, the... the the, my, my fellow um, uh, member of parliaments will sometimes ask, uh, could we include our uh, the, the burden of our external operations, you know, in calculating the 2%? Uh, that's, uh, that's also an, an idea, um, um, but needs to be further investigated, of course. And um, anyway, France has committed to reach by uh, 2025 uh, the two percent because we think it's really necessary because we have this model of a complete army and if you want to to sustain the, this model you need to 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 to, to put the uh, um, the um, the money that is uh, needed um, rapidly on the geopo geopolitical uh, situation issues uh, this is certainly part of uh, of building a stronger Europe and a strong voice, a united voice of, of uh, Europe, all these geopolitical issues. Uh, should we uh, be left outside the, uh, uh, what's, what's going on between Iran and, and uh, the United States? Uh, should we? So definitely, um, uh, even if it's, we are not talking about taking active uh, measures, you know, we have to form a kind of a geopolitical uh, strategy together and uh, raise our voice and, uh, and, um, and finally uh, this is becoming, uh, um, it's, 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 it's uh, important for Europe to be uh, in a position to be a great power again. On the regarding geopolitics and so on. Now we are on top one. If we if we take all the uh, European economies, we are the leading of a leading uh, world economy. I think if we add our uh, GDPs, but we are still as as you mentioned dwarfs regarding the political side. Thanks very much indeed, uh, General. Please. So, uh, once again, <clears throat> stronger forces and will. Uh, this is to answer your question. Uh, if we don't have stronger forces, we will not be able to apply hard power. If we don't uh, apply hard power, it will be, we will be irrelevant for the rest of the world. And this is clear uh, to me in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, whatever. And I will love it to count in a different way the 2%. <laughs> so please extend me the recipe and I will follow it with all my heart. By the way, my regards to General uh, uh, We'll give your uh, email address to Terry afterwards, uh, General, so that she can uh, promptly send it in. Uh, Minister, please, final word. General Hodges is a good friend, but here I am dead against his proposal. <laughs> Because I can only imagine in the budget talks if uh, there would be another way of counting 2%, there will be a line of ministries waiting for that 2%. People who build roads, people who build electric power stations, people who build 
telecommunications. Everything is military nowadays. Mm. Military mobility, everything is military. So it's very easy to, to squeeze the combat power out of the 2%. And by the way, if we talk about cyber, even in the present rules, if you create a combat capability of cyber forces of sorts or cyber commands, you can count it in. But if you have civilian protection in, God, in, in, in cyber issues, then you cannot do that. So, so there is a difference. You can do a lot even according to the present standards, but I believe we shouldn't change it because what we need are combat and combat support capabilities. That is what the 2% should provide. Uh, Minister, thanks very much. I was hoping for another round of questions, but we are out of time, and I know that everybody likes the coffee. And I think we've worked our four speakers magnificently well, but, but hard enough. I mean, using the McDonald's uh, sort of approach to conferences, my takeaways uh, from today on European strategic autonomy would definitely be that uh, we need to take a broad view of this. Uh, I think the speakers uh, agreed. The hard power component is key, but to be successful, it has to cover uh, ways of promoting and defending, protecting Europe's broader geopolitical strategic interests in a competitive world. Uh, one of the ingredients is freedom of action uh, for when Europe has to act. Um, to take a geopolitical approach, reduce our dependencies, uh, particularly in an increasingly wired connected world. Where do we draw the line when it comes to being open to uh, world trade uh, and world agreements and uh, drawing the line when it comes to protecting core strategic industries? That's going to be a difficult debate. Uh, we agreed that it's not for Article 5. For that, we need the United States and Canada. Uh, and the NATO alliance, but there are plenty of other crises where the US, Canada are less likely to be drawn in where Europe needs to act. Uh, Africa was mentioned, the periphery, but we even had the interesting idea that strategic autonomy should be global, at least in scope, uh, with the possibility of doing things beyond Europe. Korea was mentioned if uh, there is a need. There were appeals to do the thing in parallel, not allow problems in one area to stymie or hold up uh, activities elsewhere, decision-making uh, versus capability development, uh, to stick to the benchmarks. Uh, we've got our benchmarks, we have our 2%, we have our PESCO, uh, let's not change these things now that we are starting out. Um, uh, an appeal for pragmatism, uh, particularly when it comes to taking anything that seems to work, whether inside the EU or outside the EU, building on existing bilateral uh, arrangements, and particularly not excluding European players. Uh, the UK was mentioned, but there are others who really have something to bring uh, to the uh, table. Uh, and then finally, a sense that this is probably not the time for big European reform efforts. Uh, let's continue pragmatically, even if in coalitions for the time being, but maybe not exclude uh, some further reforms in the future. A European Security Council uh, was mentioned when the time is uh, right. So uh, I think uh, we, we've met the sort of exam question uh, of at least demystifying what European strategic autonomy is. It's to allow Europe to be a great power Again, making Europe great. Sorry about this. Again. Anyway, thank you very much again uh, and a big hand for the four speakers. Thank you. Thank you.